Um, we are in our series of First John, exploring what it means to walk in the light and to walk in God's love, and really what that looks like for holy, holistic relationships with God and others. And I'm going to start with a question tonight that I am kind of reluctant to ask because I'm a little bit afraid of the answer. And that is, how, what, what does how you live, uh, what does how you live your life say about what you truly believe? What does your life say about what you truly believe? And I, I think this is a rather uncomfortable question. Um, like I said, I, I don't like asking it because I'm afraid of all the ways that my life might not line up with what I think I believe. The problem is, we like to think that belief is basically mentally agreeing that something is true. And that as long as we, as long as we think this, that we think that this thing is true, that we can say that we believe something. So, uh, a simple example of something that mostly works this way with very few possible implications for how we live is that I could say, um, I believe that Jupiter is a giant planet way out in our solar system, far from Earth, and that it is the largest planet in our solar system. And as far as I can tell, my mental acknowledgement that this is true has very few practical implications for how I live my life. And I could go a little bit further in the same genre and say that I believe that Pluto is still a full planet and not merely the dwarf planet in our solar system. And mostly, the implications of that belief would get me into a few trivial arguments with people who think otherwise, and that a museum got $3 from me when I bought this bookmark that says, Pluto, never forget. And as a whole, you can see how, how both of these beliefs, they, they have few practical implications for how I live my life. Um, you can see how I can believe in something and say that I believe in something without it really making much difference for, for how I live each day, for the choices I make, right? On the other hand, if I say that I believe that having three handfuls of fruits and vegetables a day is more beneficial for my health than eating three handfuls of potato chips, well, that has some practical implications for me, doesn't it? If, if I say I believe this, but I never eat vegetables, um, you would be excused for wondering whether I really do believe that. Um, especially if I don't eat the vegetables, but I do eat the three handfuls of potato chips. You might wonder if I really believe that potato chips are more beneficial for my health than vegetables. And the scale would probably start to ask me that question as well. And you might ask me, but Tim, if you really believe that vegetables are better for you than potato chips, why are you eating potato chips instead of vegetables? 
And I'd have to admit that's a good question. And I might have to admit that my life and actions are telling a different story of what I believe than the story that I tell in my mind and sometimes out loud to others. I think that we are far more comfortable with a belief action system like Jupiter than we are with a belief action system like the vegetables. Because life is easier, or at least it seems easier sometimes to live on our own terms. If we can believe that something is true, but that it doesn't have real implications for how we live our lives. And I think that we are far happier to relegate our belief and actions into that category of belief that Jupiter is. And more than that, I think that we are more comfortable to categorize our belief in God in the same way that we categorize our belief in Jupiter. Because it's far easier to say that I believe something if there are few implications for how I'm living my life. If there's no follow-through. The challenge is, though, that belief in God is far more like the vegetables than far-off planets. And the narrative of our life tells the story of what we really believe far more than the narrative that we tell in our heads. And this is what John is concerned about in our passage today. That the story of our lives tells more about what we really believe than what we might tell ourselves about what we believe in our minds. So John writes this in, in 1 John 2, uh, 2.28 to 3.10. He says, And now, dear children, continue in him, so that when he appears, we may be confident and unashamed before him at his coming. If you know that he is righteous, you know that everyone who does what is right has been born of him. See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God, and that is what we are. The reason the world does not know us is that it did not know him. Dear friends, now we are children of God, and what we will be has not yet been made known. But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. Everyone who sins breaks the law. In fact, sin is lawlessness. But you know that he appeared so that he might take away our sins, and in him is no sin. No one who lives in him keeps on sinning. No one who continues to sin has either seen him or known him. Dear children, do not let anyone lead you astray. The one who does what is right is righteous, just as he is righteous. The one who does what is sinful is of the devil, because the devil has been sinning from the beginning. The reason the Son of God appeared was to destroy the devil's work. No one who is born of God will continue to sin, because God's seed remains in them. They cannot go on sinning, because they have been born of God. This is how we know who the children of God are, and who the children of the devil are. Anyone who does not do what is right is not God's child, nor is anyone who does not love their brother and sister. So John talks about lawlessness and sin 
and he makes this very uncomfortable statement that what we really believe and whose children we really are is played out in the story of our lives, in the actions and the choices of our lives. Sometimes we hear comforting statements about how everyone is a child of God. John says, the content of your life shows whose child you really are. If the actions, uh, if the actions of the story of our life is one of sin and selfishness and rebellion and harm and hate, John says, whoever makes a practice of sinning is a child of the devil. If the actions of the story of our life is one of love and right relatedness and wholeness and godly actions, John says, the one who practices righteousness is a child of God. The, the statements that John makes about this, I think, are actually quite unsettling. Because people see, seeking to follow Jesus then uh, just as now, were far happier uh, to believe that it was fine if the actions of their lives didn't line up with their faith. Because they thought what mattered most was that they mentally agreed to something. It's that, that planet Jupiter level of belief. Um, it's true. Of course it's there. It makes some practical differences probably that I don't understand but that there's no need to participate in the reality of this truth because my choices don't affect and aren't affected by my belief in the planet Jupiter. But John, what John says is unsettling because he says, no, no, no. The story that your life tells, the actions that you take and the choices you make show God and everyone else, whether you're a child of God or a child of the devil. You can't have it both ways. And if you're like me, and you realize all the ways that you sin and fall short, this is the moment where you pause with the realization that you might be in trouble. Because the story of your life maybe isn't telling the story that you tell yourself in your head. It's very disturbing. So let me say this, this little footnote. John has already spoken in 1 John chapters 1 and 2 that followers of Jesus still sin. And to confess your sins and to receive the forgiveness that is in Christ. But here, he's also pushing on that. He's creating a tension because he's saying, don't settle for that. Don't, don't settle for, for just constantly being caught up in the, in the same sin. Don't settle for constantly going through the same uh, system of, of sin over and over again. Uh, that matters. Care about that. Care that that is a problem, he's saying. There is forgiveness but don't settle for sin and risk cheapening mercy and grace over and over again. The story of our lives tells everyone 
whose child we really are and the direction that we're headed. And it's either a story of faith in Christ, marked by growing in righteousness, marked by love for God and for one another, or it's a story of faith in self or of something or someone else marked by growing in sin and selfishness and rebelliousness and a lack of love for God and for God's people. So in the midst of this unsettling tension, John also draws out another helpful reality. That being God's child doesn't start with you. It's not all on you. It's not all your weight to bear. Being a child of God starts with God himself. In 1 John 3.1, John writes, See what great love the Father has lavished on us, that we should be called children of God. Some translations use the term, uh, behold what great love the Father has lavished on us. There, uh, because there is a, a, a character in the language here that it's an unexpected surprise of good news. And it, and it is uh, unexpected, surprising good news, the love that the Father has lavished on us. I, I know in, in Western cultures these days, we like to think that people are basically good. But in reality, if you get down to reading the realistic story of our own lives and a quick examination of human history would indicate, I think, that we're not basically good. It's probably more accurate to say that we're pretty self-seeking and evil and on occasion do something good. So in light of this reality of how far from God we really are when left to ourselves, it is incredible and hope-filled and surprising that we could be called children of God. Like, like John writes in, in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verses 12 and 13, he says, uh, Yet to all who did receive him, that's Jesus, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, children born not of natural descent, nor of human decision or a husband's will, but born of God. The surprising good news that in Christ we can be born of God. And so while the story of our lives may not be perfect, while the story of our lives is, is riddled and pockmarked with with sin all over the place. God rewrites our story in the light of Christ. That even, that even while our story indicated that we were children of the devil, God sent his son Jesus to receive our punishment and to pay our price so that the story could be rewritten into his story so that we could be called children of God. This is surprising and good news. Amen? Because it's not something that we can earn. We can't, we can't earn that. There's nothing that we can do to earn that. It's only something 
that we get to receive through Jesus as a gift from God. That's good news. And then back into the tension because John tells us uh, that, that this is good news and that in Christ we have become children of God. And so then he says, live that out. Let that be the thing that you're living out. Let that be the expression that you're living out. Live your life as an expression of being a child of God, not as a child of the devil, because this is who he's made you to be in Christ. So live out being a child of God. Let your life reveal that you're a child of God. And so he, so he gives us um, this, in the, the, these verses, this, this tension-filled jumble of, of hope and delight and a sobering reality check and an, an, an active response to work on living differently because we're children of God. And so how do we live as children of God? I think John points to two key realities of abiding in Christ and of hoping in Christ. So we live as children of God by abiding in Christ. 1 John 2, 28 says to continue in Christ. Other translations say remain in him, or some say abide in him. This phrase, it calls to mind the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus says, I am the vine, and you are the branches. If you remain in me and I in you, you will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. We can't live as children of God on our own or by our own strength. It's impossible. We're not, we're not meant to do it on our own. We're not meant to do it by ourselves. We're meant to do it with him. But we try it on our own sometimes. And, and this is how we end up religious. We think, well, I need to live as a child of God. So now I'm, going to set up, now I'm going to set up some rules and some structures and systems uh, to follow to make sure that I do this, to make sure that I live this out. And so we, so we just try to, to regiment our life. Or we think, uh, I, just, I just need to try harder. I, I, I can be more, more disciplined. Uh, I can get these problems under control by my own strength. And a lot of the time, we can't. A lot of the time, we fail in trying to follow Jesus on our own strength because we're not actually intended to follow him on our own strength. So we fail. Sometimes we succeed. But even there, we just end up self-sufficient and and for having self-lordship and self-rule in a different way because we just become self-righteous. And we say things like, well, I did it, so why can't you did it? I, I was strong enough, why, why can't you be strong enough? And so, and this ends up just placing a whole new kind of sin and self-rule in our life that we need to deal with. When all along, what God is inviting us into 
is to be his children, to walk in closeness of relationship with him. He just wants, he just wants us to be close to him. And that in the context of relationship, we are changed in him and through him by being close to him. I'm, I'm sure I've said this before, uh, but have you ever noticed how when you start spending a lot of time with someone that you start to become like them in different ways? Uh, this, is, this is why parents are so concerned about who their kids spend time with because because we, we say things like, well, is this person going to be a good influence or a bad influence on, on my child? Because I don't want my child to pick up their bad qualities, right? Uh, I, I remember uh, I used to work in youth ministry at uh, Sherbrooke Church, um, and my lead pastor there, his, his name was James, and, and he had this, this laugh where he would, so, something funny would happen or someone would tell a joke, and he would, he would laugh and followed by the, the expression classic. And, uh, and so I found, you know, I wasn't there very long and all of a sudden I would be laughing and saying classic, like <laughs> classic, just like that. Um, and that's, and that's how, you know, I learned to laugh from him. I still do it sometimes. We are, we are shaped by and even become like those we spend time with and are close to. As a parent, for better or worse, our kids reflect us. If you spend any time with my kids, you will realize that they have picked up my excellent punniness and sense of humor, and also my occasional uh, bad habit of sometimes overreacting to some things. <laughs> chips. <laughs> or eating too many chips. Um, so living as... And becoming a child of God looks like spending time with him. It looks like being close to him. That, uh, that we express faith through being with him and the rest of his children. And as we do, as we walk in closeness with him, the story of our lives can't help but begin to reflect him more and more. Because children reflect their parents and when we spend time with our Father in heaven, we begin to reflect our Father in heaven. The other way that we live as children of God is by hoping in Christ. John points to this as, as hoping in or anticipating Christ's return. In 1 John 3, 2, uh, verses 2 to 3, he says, uh, But we know that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. All who have this hope in him purify themselves just as he is pure. When we walk in hope and anticipation of something that we're really looking forward to, we can't help but set aside the peripheral things in our lives that keep us from striving towards that better goal that we're so excited about. So I remember when, when Charlotte and I we're engaged to be married. And the hope and anticipation of spending our lives together was focusing for me. I couldn't wait to be married to her. So that, that even though there was, there was work involved in getting to that day and in reordering our lives, um, it, was, it was easy 
to be able to set aside time um, and to, to set aside space for the things that were important um, and, and to set aside the things uh, that were a barrier to this more desirable goal that I, that I knew was, was better. And so, of course, I would set aside time for premarital mentoring. And, of course, I took time to find us a place and to help furnish it. And, of course, I did whatever I needed to to reorder my life because I knew that what was to come was better than what I had going on on my own. And this is what John is pointing to. Because what Jesus has for us at his return, what he has for us with our life with him, is so much better than what we have going on on our own. And so we can live with the, the anticipation of Christ's return, and it can be focusing for us when we live this way. That we're able to live with an expectation that allows us to set aside the things that keep us from this much better goal. When we realize and expect how amazing it's going to be at his return, we are empowered to cast aside the things that hold us back. So when we ask that unsettling question, what does the story of my life say about me? Does it, re does it reveal that I'm a child of God or a child of the devil? we also get to ask a follow-up question. Who is in my story and what is the direction of my story? And the only right answer is Jesus. Because when we abide in him, when we invite him to be the center of our story, and when he is our hope and our anticipation, he becomes the content and the direction of our story. So that more and more, our lives start to reflect him. So that our belief becomes more reflected in our actions. And so that the story our lives are telling points to Jesus, tells about Jesus. So what is the story your life is saying about you? Whose child does it say that you are? And whose child do you want to be? How is the Spirit calling you to invite Jesus to be the author of your story? Would you pray with me? Father, I thank you that you were not content to leave us alone in our story, in our, in our broken story that pointed away from you and that, and that doesn't lead to you. Thank you that, that you were not content with that and that, that in response that you sent your son Jesus to rewrite our story by, by dying in our place, by paying the price we couldn't pay, so that he could rewrite our story and that our story could, could merge with his story 
and become part of who he is and what he's doing. Jesus, your story is so much better than ours. And we want your story to become our story. That our lives would reflect you. That our choices would reflect you. That when, that when people look at us, that they would see children of God and that that would be good news because they could experience your light and your love through us. That in the way that we walk with one another, Jesus, that your light and your love could be experienced through us. So Jesus, would you be the, the author of our story? Fill us with your spirit so that you would be the one that we are reflecting, that you would be the one who is known through us and through the story we're telling. In Jesus' name, amen.